So if you haven't got it already, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. If you've got a church Bible, it's approximately page 1211. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are ill-treated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Let's just pray together before we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we thank you that the very same Holy Spirit who inspired its writing has preserved it down through the centuries is here in our midst this morning, so that no matter how deaf we might be, no matter how stuttering and stammering the speaker might be, the Spirit can open our hearts and our minds so that the Word of God can come in and do its work. Lord, we submit to that Word now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm hoping this is going to work, is it? Yes, it is. There we go. Um, that's the text that I've been given. You may have heard it before this morning. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So, I put that up there deliberately so you could concentrate on that if you got bored, but it's a little bit small, isn't it? There we go. But it'll stay there all the way through. Uh, it's, it's useful to put it into its actual context because what we've got here is, is either two balancing commands, one negative, one positive, or a, a single command. Uh, I tend to favor the, the latter. Um, and following it comes a rational promise, a reason to do what we've been told to do. Uh, and if you look at the whole chapter, um, you'll be struck by the fact that actually this is towards the end of a whole series of things that the, the writer is saying that all really come under the heading of um, let brotherly love continue or keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Uh, and that, that kind of heading is then followed by a whole series of things and some advice to us, a command to us, if you like, and then a reason for keeping that command. It's very gracious of God, isn't it? Not only to give us commands, but to tell us the benefits of keeping those commands. Um, he's not like uh, so many of us have been as parents and saying, because I say so. You know, when you get exasperated with the children who keep asking why, you, you, uh, the final answer is, isn't it, because I say so. Well, God gives us the reason. So, 
just have a look at them for a moment. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. They turned angels away from their door. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. You're part of this suffering church. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Then the reason for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We're only going to look at verse 5. But the, the links between them are kind of well established. Um, if, if you have a look at the, the kind of literature that was around at the time um, that the, the writer to the Hebrews was writing, they, they tended to link two things together um, that I'm not sure I would have naturally linked together. Um, just give you a couple of examples. Philo says, all the worst quarrels, public and private, are due to greed, either for a well-formed woman or for possessions. I can never pronounce this one. Epictetus says, the pattern reflects an awareness that selfishness lies behind both sexual immorality and greed. And a guy called Lucian says, the love of pleasure brings in both adultery and the love of money. But from our point of view, I think the more significant thing is that if you go through the Ten Commandments, verse 14 of Exodus 20 says, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, and verse 15 goes straight on to, you shall not steal. So it does look as if there is a link between this and, and that link, I think, um, we'll come to it in a few moments. It's all to do with not being content. It's the kind of heart of the whole thing. So, keep yourselves free from the love of money. This, this isn't actually theoretic um, to the people who are, are reading this letter uh, initially. Um, they've been there. Um, in, in chapter 10 and verse 34, we read, For you had compassion on those in prison, uh, and then this is the part, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They had been there. They had had their, their love of money, if you like, tested, and they had come through the trial. But the writer to the Hebrews still presses it on them because I don't know whether you found, I'm sure you will have done, that if you overcome a temptation on one occasion, doesn't necessarily mean you've gained a permanent victory over it. Because Satan has that way, doesn't he, of coming back in a slightly different way from a slightly different angle. Uh, and um, Paul has to warn the Corinthians, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In my view, come and argue with me later if you want to, I think that our text is only relevant to two groups of people not anybody else. It's irrelevant, firstly, to those that have got money, and then it's relevant to those that haven't got money. Because either group of people can be tested, can't they, to, to, to love money more than they should do. Because the issue is quite clearly not the possession of money. 
it's the, the love of money or the, the affection for money. The word that's used there for love is, is, is a Greek word that means to focus closely on something, um, to have a close association with it, to have a strong affection for it. These are people who wake up in the morning thinking about money. They go to bed at night thinking about money. It, it, the, the verb here is an imperative one. Both of them are love not money. It is a strong command as is be content. Both of them, God is saying, look, this is, this is something that matters. This is something that you've really got to take notice of. But as I say, it's not, it's not money. That's not the issue. There are quite a few places we could turn in Scripture, aren't there, to find that, that um, money is clearly a, a gift to a particular individual directly from the hand of God. Uh, you have it, I think, with, with Abraham when he's rescued um, Lot from the, the, the enemies of the king of Sodom and so on, and he comes back, uh, and it's that famous passage where Melchizedek appears um, in Genesis 14. Um, but the, the king of Sodom um, says to him, look, you know, t take whatever you want. Take, take the possessions that you've earned through this uh, piece of, of kind of guerrilla warfare that you've been involved in. Uh, and Abraham, as he's called, then Abraham turns around and says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread nor a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. He, he covets the fact that his riches, and, and they're considerable uh, at this time in his life, that those riches are the gift of God. It's, it's only God that has made this wandering Aramean prosper. It is God, and it's no one but God. And you can see in the life of Abraham that he, he holds all these riches very, very loosely in his hand. Much earlier in the story, they'd become so wealthy, he and Lot, his nephew, were, were kind of shepherding together. They'd become so wealthy that the land wasn't really able to support them. And there had been incidents when Lot's servants had found themselves fighting Abram's servants because there wasn't enough pasture or there wasn't enough water. And Abram says, whoa, 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 this has got to stop. But as the, the patriarch of the family, as the one in charge of everything, he says to Lot, you pick where you want to go and I'll go wherever's left. He had the right to say to Lot, right, right, mate, you go off up there um, and struggle for a living, uh, and I'm going to go down here to the plain and, and have an easy life, and my wealth will increase, and yours will probably shrink a bit. But he doesn't. He says to Lot, you choose, uh, and where you choose to go, I'll go in the opposite way. But you get another example, don't you, in, in Job. When we first encounter Job, um, he, he's a very, very rich man, uh, and then he loses everything. Everything is taken from him. It's one of the most kind of catastrophic. And one, one visitor is coming in on the heels of the last one, telling him that, that this has happened and that's happened. Your sheep have gone, your cattle have gone, your house has burnt down. All your kids are dead. Everything's gone. Uh, and what Job says is, well, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not a man who has 
a, a dangerous love of money. And what happens to him at the end? Well, God restores it all, doesn't he? Um, chapter 42, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He was rich again. But that riches had been given by God, taken away by God, and restored by God. And through it all, Job just says, well, God be praised. And now if that's not an example of a man content with what he's got, I don't know what is. What then are the dangers of loving money too much? If you stop and think about it, it's like most, if not all sins, a violation of the first and the second commandments, isn't it? If you love money more than you love God, you've broken the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. If you love money too much, then you will find yourselves being begrudging and mean towards your fellow man. There's a great deal of wisdom. Um, the, the writer to Proverbs says this, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then he goes on, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The, the writer of Proverbs there is saying that there are two dangers that are facing me. If I've got too much money, I, I will begin to think to myself, Well, that's fine. I, I've got it. It's mine. If I've got too little, I may covet other people's money or I may steal other people's money. William Lane says the love of money can be an ugly expression of deep-rooted selfishness. It can keep Christians from helping their fellow men who are in need. It can make them think of protecting their possessions rather than maintaining their solidarity with those who are outcast, despised, and ill-treated. He suggests half a dozen things specifically that loving money too much can lead us into. The first is, if we love our money too much and, and, and we've got a, a decent amount of it, it can lead to pride. Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. If you've got money, you've only got it because either God placed you in a family where you inherited it from somebody, or he gave you the, the physical ability, the mental ability, the opportunities in order to be able to earn that money. But God could have equally withheld any of those things from you. And so it's, it's not us, it's not me. It's not my strength. It's not my might. It's always the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of God. If you've got riches, that's where you got them from. You've got them from the hand of God. Don't Love them too much. Love the God who gave them to you. The second thing is that it can foster injustice, can't it? 
Um, Leviticus 19, there's so many verses here that you could look at, but Leviticus 19 talks about having just balances and just weights and a just ephah because I am the Lord your God. Don't, don't cheat people who are inclined to sort of pair a little bit off the weight, if you remember those old weighing scales. Yeah, some of you are old enough. Remember we used to have like a, a, a balancing thing and, and, and you put your butter on the one side and you put a one pound weight on the other and they were supposed to end up level. Um, but if you shaved a little bit off the, off the, the one pound weight, then... You, didn't, you could shave a bit off the butter as well. And, and people used to do that. And one of the jobs of the kind of trading standards people was to sweep into a shop uh, and check all the scales to make sure they were absolutely accurate. And you still see them sometimes. If you go into a garage, you'll see somebody there uh, and they're, they're pouring out a gallon of fuel to make sure that it is a gallon of fuel, not something less. Loving money too much can make you want to cheat and steal in order to get it. It, it can change your whole heart. Uh, Amos talks about people on the Lord's Day or, or on one of the, the religious festivals, the new moon festivals and so on. Uh, and, and God looks into their hearts and he says, I know what you're thinking. I, I know what you're thinking. And then he, he quotes it, Amos 8.5. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small and a shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. They can't wait to get back into the marketplace and cheat people. James, right into our New Testament, um, has exactly the same things in mind. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming to you. Your, roches have, your riches I'm sorry, have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. You have laid up treasure in the last days. But then he comes to the point, but behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God says, you, you, you've made a fortune by being crooked. You may well get away with it in the law courts of Israel, but you won't get away with it in the law courts of God. He will call you to account for what you've done. But it gets worse, doesn't it? It can even lead to fatal sins. I'm sure you know the story in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a parcel of ground and, and, and they, they bring it to the apostles and say, you know, we'd like to put this into the common treasury. And everybody says, oh, that's, that's a wonderful pair, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, self-sacrificial and so on. Uh, but they're lying. Uh, and Peter challenges them and he says, look, what, what are you doing? What on earth has, has made you want to lie to God about this? He says, when you had the money, it was yours. Nobody asked you for it. When you sold the portion of land, you could have given some of the money. You didn't have to give any of it. But giving it and saying you've given all of it when you didn't, just to bolster your status in the church. And of course, Ananias first and then short change afterwards, Sapphira both dropped dead. And great fear came upon the whole church. They suddenly realized, you know what? God is serious about sin. It actually matters to him. Which is why I think 
we can deduce from the passage that it's a form of bondage. That's why the writer uses the words, be free, be free. Chasing money is a delusion anyway, isn't it? Uh, John Rockefeller, who's one of the, um, I don't know what they, what goes above zillion, I mean, they'd be up there in that kind of money, wouldn't he? He says, I've made many, many, many millions, but they brought me no happiness. Henry Ford said, do you know, I was much happier doing the mechanics work than I am now. Uh, and one of the most notable heiresses came out with a, such a sad statement, I think. She was talking to, to, to someone and she says, do you know, I envy you. Because unlike you, I can never, ever know whether somebody loves me for myself or just for my money. She went through about four divorces. Never know. Money, most dangerously of all, can lead to the loss of salvation. Matthew 13 as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. I'm not sure how many weeks ago now, it wasn't that long ago, maybe four or five weeks ago, uh, we were in Mark 10, uh, and the, the story of the rich young man, uh, and that sad end to it, isn't it, when, you know, Jesus tests him, uh, and he says, you know, the, there's one thing you lack, Sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. And here's the offer of a lifetime. Come and follow me. And having been told that Jesus loved him, that's why he said it. Having been told that Jesus loved him, the story ends, doesn't it, in, in such a sad way. It says he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth, many riches, and, and he's there, and on the one side is all of his riches and the status and everything that goes with it. And on the other side is becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, gaining eternal salvation. And the man is torn in two. He wants both, but he can't have both. And it looks at the end of that story that he chooses the wealth. And if that is the end of the story, I would imagine that wealth was bitter to him for the rest of his life. It's sad it can rob you of salvation. The balancing statement is be content with what you have. Um, again, if you, if you look behind what the, the, the actual words use mean, it, it means to consider that you have enough and are satisfied that you have sufficiency. Paul uses it in, in 2 Corinthians 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's typical Pauline language, isn't it? You know, all sufficiency in all things, at all times. Paul loves to pile everything one on top of the other uh, until you've got this great pyramid. Speaking personally, he says, I'm not speaking of need, he says, for I've learned in whatever situation I am therewith to be content. You go, well, really, Paul? Yeah. I'm content when I'm um, enjoying fellowship with Ananias, sorry, not with Ananias, with um, 
the tent makers. Come on, help me. Aquila and Priscilla. Thank you, Peter. Glad you came. Um, with a Priscilla and Aquila, um, I, I'm content. I'm content when I'm sat next to Silas with my back bleeding in a Philippian jail. I'm content um, when the, the Roman soldiers on the boat are deciding whether or not to murder us and throw us overboard. I'm content. I'm content, says Paul, because wherever I am, I know I'm in the will of God. Paul speaks of wrestling with what he calls a thorn in the flesh. No idea what it was, but it, it links together the various things that are going on. Um, Satan is involved in, 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 in the temptations that Paul is going through. A messenger of Satan sent to harass me. Um, God is involved. God sent this thorn in the flesh. Um, Paul is involved. Um, he pleads with God three times to have it taken away. But at the end, the reason he deduces is that this thorn, whatever it was, it doesn't matter. I think it's probably intentional that we don't know what it was, because then it covers everything. The reason was God finally said to him, Paul, Paul, Paul. Here's the lesson. My grace is sufficient for you. That's all you need to know, Paul. If you've got a bodily weakness, that's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. If you've lost all your possessions, that's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. We need to take a long, sober look, don't we, at, at discontent. It's so easy to become discontent. It, it links in, doesn't it, to the, to the sin of grumbling or the sin of muttering. You find the children of Israel doing it in the, the wilderness. They, they murmur, they mutter against God. How easy. Are you dissatisfied? Let me give you a, a quick list. With your salary, with your health, with the government, with the NHS waiting list that you've been waiting to get to the top of for a long time, with your job, with your home, with your husband or your wife, with your church, with your role in the church, with the pastor, with the length of this sermon already so far. You know, there's a million things you can be discontent with. You, you want things to be different. But there's a deeper level to this, isn't there? There's a more destructive force. If you step back and think about it, being dissatisfied is challenging the sovereignty of God. It's challenging the grace and the provision of God. It's bluntly a statement that we think God has shortchanged us. God has shortchanged us. I am not content, Lord, with what you've given me. Is the same as saying you haven't given me what I deserve. Uh, and that, for a Christian, it really is an untenable position, isn't it? It's a questioning of the goodness of God. If we truly believe that our God is a good God, then we'll view everything through that prism and we'll know peace. Whatever is happening to us, you say, well, God knows about this, and God is good, and, and you come to that most profound of all verses in Scripture, in my opinion, Romans 8, 28, I know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Is that how we really believe? Or is that just trite words? And Paul goes on in, in Romans 8, doesn't he? It, it's a fantastic 
um, passage, but he goes on, you know, what can separate us from the love of God? Uh, and he just pours it on. It's also a major hindrance to evangelism. A guy by the name of Kenneth Osbeck says this, a professing Christian who is perceived by his family, friends, and colleagues to be continually sour, contentious, or discontent is a disgrace to the gospel and a hindrance in the work of evangelism. I remember somebody many, many years ago saying that many a Christian child had been lost to the kingdom of God because they were fed on a diet of criticism every Sunday. Criticism of the church, criticism of the pastor, criticism of the sermon. Uh, and what they learned at their parents' feet was this is not as good as it's cracked up to be. That's a terrible indictment. Then we come to the rationale, just to, last point, the rationale. If you're wondering where the quotation comes from, um, because God has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, um, it, you won't find it in those exact words in the Old Testament anyway. There, there's one of two possibilities. Either it, it is a distillation of biblical truth. This, this is God's message to us, and that's undoubtedly true. Or, or the other possibility is that it's actually an otherwise unrecorded saying of Jesus or someone, um, because the New Testament does, doesn't it, fill in blanks. Um, Peter tells us something about Lot that we would never have worked out from Genesis, for instance, that he was a godly man and he was discontent living in Sodom. It doesn't come out of Genesis, but the Holy Spirit revealed that. Um, and maybe that's what's going on here. But the promise is of strength, isn't it? And the promise is of presence. Joshua, when he takes over the leadership of the people of Israel, is told, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I mean, what a comfort. As, as you know, the old man dies. Moses who led the children out of Israel, Moses, who goes up onto the mountain and speaks face to face with God, Moses, with whom God communicates at the tabernacle, gone. Who's left? I am, Joshua. Well, I'm pretty handy with a sword, but this job's too much for me. And God draws near to him and says, don't worry, don't worry, Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. And that's the promise here, isn't it, to us. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lots of other versions, but um, just pick on a couple from um, the words of Jesus himself. Uh, in, in John 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is when he's told the disciples in the upper room, um, I'm going away, and where I go, you can't follow. And they go, what? What are we going to do now then? We, we've Three years, we've been following you everywhere. Um, when you say go, we go. When you say stay, we stay. What are we going to do now? Jesus, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you, of course, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So there's a, a huge challenge for us in, in our text today. A huge challenge. Jonathan Edwards, apparently, said that his, his touchstone for his own life was feelings. 
whenever his emotions were not in line with the Word of God, then he proposed to take time to understand the reason for it. He saw that a lack of inner peace should serve as an alarm that something was amiss within him. It might be some sin, uh, yet undiagnosed, that was causing a lack of contentment. It might be that he was failing to trust God, thereby forfeiting his inner joy. These emotion-altering conditions demanded his attention so that he could make the necessary corrections. The moment, in other words, Jonathan Edwards was tempted to moan, the moment he was tempted to be discontent, the moment he was tempted to, to fear the loss of something, he said, there's something wrong with me, and I need to put it right. In an article in a magazine called Table Talk, uh, the author said this, are you content? A lack of contentment is a slippery slope leading to all sorts of sin and grief. Take a serious look at your heart today and make this a matter of prayer. Ask God to help you identify the things that cause you discontent and help you find satisfaction. The next verse goes on to say, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We've got our little cards. I have to say, Nathan, I was refused a little card last week. I, 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 I request, and I was told, if you don't know it by now, it's too late. You should know it. <laughs> I didn't know it in the NIV 2011 version, um, but I've got, I've got my little card for today, so I can, I can learn it. But what really matters, isn't it, is that not just even that we learn it, or even that we obey it, but that we embrace it, that we embrace it. Money and all these other things, they're over there, they don't really matter the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the source of our deep contentment. That's what we long for. That's what we need. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hide those words as part of your word within our heart that we might not sin against you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.